Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy with something a little different for you this week. Our editor-in-chief, Zanny Minton Beddoes, has been talking to Bill Gates, co-founder of Microsoft. In 2008, Gates, then the richest man in the world, left day-to-day management of the company to put his money to work for worthy causes. Since then, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation has had a particular focus on the fight against infectious diseases, AIDS, tuberculosis, malaria, polio, and now COVID-19. Five years ago, he warned that the world was not ready for the next pandemic. Well, 2020 has certainly proved him right. But it's also put the power and influence of such wealthy philanthropists firmly under the microscope. The Gates Foundation has so far pledged more than $350 million to the pandemic response. But supporting overwhelmed health systems, as well as developing, manufacturing and distributing a vaccine, will need much more than that. As rich countries scramble to be at the front of the queue, Gates is lobbying governments and working with Gavi, the vaccine alliance, to fund and secure vaccine doses for poorer countries. But should it really be down to billionaires to choose to bridge that gap? This week we're asking, who should foot the bill to defeat the coronavirus? Here's Annie Minton Beddoes in conversation with Bill Gates. I wanted to start with the response to the pandemic. You've warned about them for years. You've advised countries to prepare for them. Has this response been better or worse than you expected? Well, certainly we didn't get ready. We didn't run the simulations to realize, okay, getting testing up quickly would be important. So we failed before it came along. And then once it hit, we also made some mistakes. So overall, I'd say uh, the response has been less good than I expected. You know, the damage economically and health-wise has been far greater than I would have expected with a, a virus like this. What about China, about which there's obviously a lot of debate? Should we blame China for, you know, not fessing up early enough? Or should we praise them for the degree to which they got it under control internally? Well, the country that's where the new virus shows up first has the toughest job. They have no warning at all. So it's likely to get out in fairly big numbers. They clearly made mistakes. There were warning signs. They didn't go after it in the month of December and even parts of January. In retrospect, they could have rung the alarm bell more loudly than they did. After that, although in in their typical fairly authoritarian way, they did a very good job of suppressing the, the virus. You know, there may have been a lot of individual rights that were violated there, but the overall macro effect that they achieved is kind of amazing. Do you think the fact that China went into this very strict lockdown very quickly set the tone for the way other countries responded? Because that was not really part of the epidemiological playbook before. No, you're absolutely right. I live in infectious diseases and how you stop them. And so when we were first talking about 
the shutdown, I was like, wow, we're really going to do this. Are people really willing to do this? How much productivity are we going to lose by doing this? So that day we sat there in early March and said, okay, no one comes to the foundation. We were talking with Microsoft about it, and they did the same thing. I, I remember thinking, gosh, I wish we did practice for this because it's such a novel idea. I think, yes, that influenced things. The idea that you would just let it rip, you know, nobody really did that. Even Sweden, that people call out, did ask for behavioral change. Now let's turn to the US because it's the world's biggest economy. It's got the world's best epidemiologists. I mean, why is it done so badly? Well, we believe in freedom, individual freedom. We optimize for individual rights. You know, there's some bad luck in this that the CDC's initial test was slow, complicated, didn't work. They didn't let the commercial labs come in. There's a big, you know, that alone that that South Korea called up the commercial labs and said, go full speed. And many other countries that did well did that because they had the experience of SARS and MERS in, in many cases. So we messed up getting that commercial lab capacity going. We never created a CDC website that would prioritize who was tested. So we've had a very uncoordinated testing. And the fact that people's behavior, even if they test positive, doesn't change their behavior as much as other countries to take them out of the infection pool. That's where, unfortunately, we had a continued high level of infection through the summer. But those are, I mean, th th those are all very real reasons, but they're sort of technocratic reasons. But what about the political backdrop? Because it's, it's kind of extraordinary that, you know, mask wearing is, or not is a political statement in the US. So how much has the, has the political polarization, the kind of very, very polarized, angry country you're in contributed to this? And frankly, you know, the leadership or lack thereof of President Trump? Well, usually you'd have the CDC speaking. They're trained to talk about epidemics and, and changing behavior. The idea that the administration got caught up with, okay, do people think we did a good job? That is a bit of a distraction that they want the report card very quickly and they want a very good rate on the report card as opposed to saying, hey, here's what we do know. Here's what we don't know. You know, the medical experts, we didn't know about mask wearing. In retrospect, it's kind of obvious in a way. I mean, yes, for different particle sizes, it works better or worse. Then we didn't get quite the trusted leaders with the clear message in the U.S. that we should have. That, you know, accounts for some of our infection. Basically, the communities that weren't hit in the first wave somehow thought they weren't going to be hit. And that led to a very tough summer. And how widespread has the damage from that been? I mean, clearly it's meant that the U.S. has probably suffered more than it needed to. But what about globally? Do you think it's damaged the way the pandemic's been addressed globally to have the world's superpower at odds with itself and disengaged? Well, the thing about the lockdown, so the whole world, because we weren't prepared, we had this one tactic. And did we use it in the right way at the right time? The two global response things, one is did we fund R&D for the vaccine? And there the U.S. gets by far the highest grade because 80% of the funding has come from the U.S. The balance has come from governments funding local champions. And CEPI, which is a thing that was set up by Welcome Ourselves UK, Norway, Japan back in 2016 to deal with a, a problem like this. Our foundation has also stepped in. But the R&D piece, the world hasn't done as much as I expected, although the U.S. money will help there. As yet, we haven't funded the purchase 
of the vaccines and therapeutics for the developing countries. But that, you know, I'm involved in a lot of discussions with country leaders about how we can get that to happen, taking advantage of very successful vehicles we have, like Gavi for the vaccine and Global Fund for the, the therapeutics. So we'll get to vaccines in a second, but I just want to ask you one more question about the U.S., which is what is likely to change were we to have a President Biden and, and what should change in the U.S. response? To bring the epidemic to an end, we do need a vaccine. I don't know that changing administrations will get more people to wear masks. You might have a leader who personally does better on that, but will that convince opposition members to wear masks or you know, will they even view it as a sign of protest that their person to get elected? So it's hard to see how we build that trust network and improve behavior at this point. It'll be mostly incremental. I don't see some breakthrough that'll avoid us being at the bottom of the league table on mask usage. That's really interesting and unbelievably depressing. So the polarization is now such that even if you have a different tone set from the top, it's now kind of so political that you would still, you think, see this debate about mask wearing. For this pandemic, I'm afraid the attitudes are large, have largely set in. The next challenge will be to do the right thing with the vaccine so that people see it as a tool that they're willing to seek so that we get the immunity level up substantially. And instead of having exponential growth of the disease, we have exponential decline. Well, let's talk about vaccines next. There is this big race around the world to develop a vaccine. You, the Gates Foundation, are playing a big role in this. But And you've said, I think, at one point that financing a COVID vaccine is, quote, not an issue. But I think our, our article last week suggested that governments have devoted only 10 billion to the cause. Are we spending enough? And if not, why not? Well, there are six efforts that are the furthest along, which will be in phase three trials by the end of September. I do think several of them will be successful, not just at the 50% level, but the 80, 90% level in terms of blocking transmission and sickness. So the early ones may not be the best, and these characteristics are hard to measure, but I don't think we need more constructs uh, here. I think we have enough to be successful. We do need to finance these constructs so that we get them out globally because that's the only way the epidemic ends. So we all need to spend billions to get the vaccine out to save the trillions that the economic damage is doing. But why isn't that happening? I mean, you put it you put it very well. Why aren't we spending the billions to save the trillions? When you talk to, you know, prime ministers, presidents, as I'm sure you do, why isn't this happening? The R&D funding, all the countries but the U.S. do need to think about why weren't they able to orchestrate early high-risk money. They did some things, but, you know, it was, was far short. I mean, you, the U.K., did better over time. Germany did some things. But the U.S. is, thank goodness that BARDA, with all its imperfections, was there uh, to move things ahead. Right now, that's viewed as a selfish act because they only finance factories that are dedicated to the U.S. If they complement that with money to buy the vaccine for the developing countries, then people will understand, okay, this was a huge favor that was done for the entire world. Many of these vaccines are fairly low cost to make, not the DNA, RNA, but the other ones, AstraZeneca, Johnson & Johnson, uh, Novavax, Sanofi, all of those will be in the 2 to $3 marginal cost range. 
So you'll pay a somewhat higher price in rich and middle income to defer the, the fixed costs of the, the development. But for the very poorest countries where you just go for marginal costs, these vaccines will be quite cheap. So 10 or 12 billion total to buy the vaccine for the developing world would almost certainly suffice. And that's a you know tiny number that the Europeans have tried to raise, but without the US taking its leadership role, as it's done in most global health things, it's been hard to get that together. So that's why I'm hoping the US in its supplemental bill or somehow will step up and lead here because that's what would really get it. So we get that full 12 billion and we're not financially limited in dosing the world. How much do you need governments here? Is there more that you could do? I mean, the foundation has already played a big role. Could you step up and do even more? That would be kind of wild because governments bring a certain legitimacy to this thing and working with other governments and the delivery systems are gonna be in the hands of the public health system in those governments. So yes, our foundation has spent hundreds of millions. If it was necessary, we'll, we'll spend a lot more than that. But having a private foundation try and take the lead on the financing the vaccine. That's never been the case, you know, for HIV or malaria, we're able to bring governments in. Polio's the one where we're almost 40% of the funding and, you know, it shouldn't be necessary, but somehow this money is is gonna get raised. It, it, it shouldn't be necessary, but we're in this extraordinary moment of, you know, lack of global leadership, lack of multilateralism, and a raging pandemic. Maybe maybe this is the time when you are one of the few people who is sort of able to really push the needle on this. And actually, it will take that to break this impasse amongst governments. Well, since it's not a market-driven thing to get all these factories going, we are putting out some high-risk money now. And we understand where the factories are for the various vaccine constructs. So we're working with the various Indian manufacturers who have a lot of capacity. They don't as much invent new vaccines, but they're actually the highest volume manufacturer in the world. So we're trying to stitch it together. And in the next few months, as the US gets its plan organized, or you know, if we have to do something extraordinary, I do think by the end of the year, we'll get these factories organized because the, the impact is so high. So by the end of the year, factories will get organized. Give me a sense of what you think is realistic to be achieved in terms of coverage of a vaccine globally. I mean, the last vaccine was, what, it took five years to develop. So by that standard, we're already in warp speed. But what realistically can we achieve in terms of how many people will get vaccinated by when? Well, these various phase three trials could complete before the end of the year. And they will complete in the first quarter of next year. And so there's about six that have that opportunity you know, and that kind of uses up the good trial sites. So, you know, it's good we don't have 12 kind of out competing each other for that phase three capacity. Even the sixth one, we need to be very careful to make sure they're able to go out. But, but what, what kind of time frame is that? I mean, is it a year? Is it longer than a year? Because you need billions of doses, will we be able to get those out and get the immunity in 2021 or will this stretch over into 2022? There's a lot of modeling nowadays that's saying that because of the infections where you do get immunity and because of cross-protection from other vaccines and coronaviruses, if you add the vaccine in, even at like a 30 to 40% level, that may stop exponential spread. So that would be a very hopeful thing. Then you can imagine uh, that by late 2021, you would have enough doses that you're almost done, but 
with just a little bit of spillover into 2022. And that would be globally, late 2021. Yeah, yeah, globally. The US, you know, has all this dedicated capacity, has the most across many manufacturers. I think in 2021, it will bring the, the pandemic to an end. But you, you have to have a vaccine, but you also have to have people willing to be vaccinated. And I think one in three Americans say they would not agree to have an FDA-approved free vaccine. So how big a risk is there that even if we have a vaccine, people actually won't get vaccinated? Well, it's partly why we need trusted people to make sure they share their view of what is the science here, what do we really know, and so that people aren't just acting on on rumors. Fortunately, this isn't measles. We don't need over 90% of people to take the vaccine. Measles and pertussis are so infectious and there's no cross protection from anything else that those need huge vaccination levels. Here, we think an additional, you know, it could be as high as 60%, but somewhere between 30 to 60% of the population taking the vaccine, if it's on the high end of the effectiveness range, which one or two of the beginning ones won't, but some of the six will be, then you'll just stop the exponential spread. So thank goodness we don't need everyone. We need a lot of people. And even some people hold back if they see after a period of time that there aren't side effects, then I think they will be drawn in. Right now, it's kind of this vague thing that uh, no one's explaining. And, and there is this fear that somehow it might get politicized, even though as yet it has not. So that suggests that even if all the current anti-vaxxers did not get vaccinated, we'd still have enough. That's right. That's right. We can get herd immunity, even if there are certain parts of the population that were not for medical reasons. You know, there'll be an age limit. Uh, we'll see, do they decide that pregnant women are in or not in or people with various other conditions. The key thing is it's got to work for the elderly. Some vaccines don't work very well, like the flu vaccine in elderly people. That's why we pick constructs here. Each of the six we think doesn't have that problem. How much damage has been done by the kind of conspiracy theories that have grown up, particularly on social media, even frankly about you personally, you know, you caused the pandemic. I mean, it's, it's very ad hominem now. Is that, you know, something you can brush aside? Do you think there's real damage done by that kind of conspiracy theory? You know, it's hard for me because I'm so science oriented to even, oh, oh come on, not really. People don't really believe that. Those things are completely untrue. And to the degree they cause people not to wear masks or seek out the vaccine or to think this is all some big conspiracy, that's unfortunate. I certainly never expected to be mentioned in any of those things because we were pretty obscure doing our work on infectious disease, which is mostly in poor countries. And this has gotten infectious diseases and crazy ideas about them into the rich countries in a way that you never would have predicted. What about the lessons for technology? Because, I mean, you know, you're one of the world's prime technologists and greatest advocates for technology. And if you look back now, has technology played a as big a role in handling and combating this pandemic as you expected it would. There's been so much talk about track and trace apps and the role that technology was going to play in that. And thus far, it seems to have been pretty underwhelming how much role it's actually played. Yeah, and I never had much expectation that the track and trace stuff would really help with contact tracing. And remember, contact tracing works when you get your cases down to quite a low level and people volunteer 
I will say that in terms of minimizing the economic damage, the fact that e-commerce was at critical mass and could scale up to meet most of the demand, the fact that at night we needed three megabits to watch Netflix movies meant that then when we were there in the day, which we weren't supposed to be, you know, running Teams or Zoom, that that three megabits allowed 95% of the time the conference seemed to actually work. If this had come five years earlier, that would have been a disaster. And all we'd be talking about is how crappy that online experience. As it is, it's just barely good enough and there's a lot of innovation. If there's anything positive that'll come out of this pandemic, forcing medicine to be done remotely and therefore forcing us to think, okay, could that be more efficient? When can that be done? We're investing more in online learning because it, it can be made so good, you know, really, really good, which it hadn't gotten the acceptance that it was worth that investment, but now it is. I guess if it had been five years ago, we wouldn't even have been able to have had this conversation had it been during a pandemic. So we've spent a lot of this conversation talking about the United States and understandably so. Let's just go back to the emerging world and the scale of damage that this pandemic is going to do. There's much less immunization against other diseases. Kids drop out of school. They often, particularly girls, may not ever go back. You know, you have an economic crisis. You have a huge impact on poverty. You know, how much of of the work, frankly, that your foundation has been doing for the last few years is going to be undermined and set back by this. Are we going back five years? Are we going back a decade? You know, what's the scale of the harm? Yeah, we're trying to pull the data together on this because it's so dynamic that the normal data systems for getting information out of developing countries that usually take often three plus years before it all gets pulled together and summarized, that clearly is, is very inadequate. And so for the, the uh, General Assembly meeting coming up in September, we're trying to get to, in our goalkeepers report a summary of, OK, here's how reproductive health was set back. Here's how malaria, HIV. And yes, the death toll because of the pandemic, you know, almost 90 percent of it will be from non-COVID related things that have to do with these systems not working as well. Uh, less deliveries, less vaccination, less HIV medicine delivered. So the systems were really on the edge, very fragile, and this hurt quite a bit. Um, I, I know you're still putting those figures together, um, but is your sense that our jaws are going to drop when we see them, just the scale of damage that we're going to see in the developing world? Because that, that's my, my gut sense, based on what we've been writing, is, is every time I read an article from our correspondents in, you know, in the emerging world and in poor countries, I'm just stunned by the scale of it. Yeah, these statistics will be millions of deaths. You know, most people have a hard time relating to that figure. So I think percentage of kids under five who die and how that's gone back up or how many years it's a setback because the last 20 years we made incredible progress. It's really a, a very positive story up until the pandemic hits in most countries. So we have to come up with a way to make it visceral for people and yet the developed countries also suffered economically. And there's a tendency to care less about people far away when you've got budgets and other challenges at home. And so will Europe stay as generous as they've been on these things? And will the U.S. that had a tradition of uh, supporting global health initiatives, will it stay engaged in the game once the pandemic is over? Or will this turning inwards mean that there's even less help 
to get these guys out of this deep hole they'll find themselves in. Yeah, I mean, that's that's potentially the greatest tragedy of this, that even as the need is greater, we're turning inward and, and the multilateralism is even less evident. But just before we go, I have to ask you one last question, which is what lessons do you think handling this crisis have taught you for uh, the next one, and not the next pandemic, but something that you think is have said publicly is an even greater challenge, which is that of climate change. Yeah, climate change is like this pandemic in that you trust your government to see things that lie ahead that will be super problematic, like a natural disaster or a war, and take the steps to avoid this awful outcome. And in the case of pandemic, there were voices saying to do that, and the cost was actually quite modest to do it right. Uh, that wasn't done. I'm hopeful that reminds people that, yes, you have to prepare in advance. Climate change isn't uncertain. It's, it's definitely coming. How quickly it comes, yeah, there's still some uncertainty about that. But the fact that it's very bad and you know over time it gets worse and you have to stop the emissions fairly quickly to not get to uh, extreme levels, we need to make those investments. And we can couple that with some of the pandemic recovery activity. Again, it's about innovation. In this negative picture, one thing I'll say is innovation continues, whether it's on global health tools or likewise on climate. The reason I think we can solve it is we get behind the innovation, both the supply of innovation, the demand for innovation, the policies that encourage that innovation. It's another case uh, wanting to step back and plan ahead. Well, in, a, in an otherwise sober tour d'horizon, I think that's a suitably upbeat place to end. Innovation as important as ever. Bill Gates, thank you very much. Thank you. And our thanks to Zanny Minton Beddoes as well. As always, we'd love to know what you think, which innovations might come out of this moment of crisis. And if governments fail to stump up the cash to fight COVID-19, well, should it be down to billionaire philanthropists to bridge the gap? Write to us, radio at economist.com, or you can tweet us at Economist Radio with your thoughts. And if you're not yet a subscriber, please do sign up, economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes, and you'll find our unrivaled coverage of COVID-19 and everything that springs from it. I'm Anne McElvoy, and in London, this is The Economist. The Economist.